Hello, I'm Dr. Jan Patterson, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at the Long School of Medicine, UT Health San Antonio, and welcome to our COVID Minute podcast series from our Office of Continuing Medical Education. Our goal is to bring you insights and updates on COVID-19 from experts who have been and continue to be very involved in COVID response. These on-demand podcasts are aimed at healthcare professionals and are ideal for clinicians on the go and others who want to stay up to date. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Jason Bowling, Professor of Medicine Infectious Diseases at the Long School of Medicine and Healthcare Epidemiologist at University Health. We will be talking about updates and outpatient strategies for managing COVID-19. So Dr. Bowling, it seems that in this most recent surge with the BA5 variant, most cases were in outpatients and fortunately there were less deaths, but still the illness uh, was significant with people feeling really bad and in addition having to miss work. Um, and also the long COVID syndrome still occurs with these variants that cause milder disease. So COVID is still a significant dilemma for us. First of all, what information should all outpatients that have COVID receive? What should they know? I think this is an important question because as you mentioned, right, the paradigm has shift. We're really focusing now on how do we treat our outpatients. That's where we're going to more often see this disease. And so it's important that everybody, all of our outpatients receive information on supportive care, staying hydrated, getting rest, and they can take antipyretics or analgesics as needed for you know, fever or myalgias that are pretty common with the current subvariant that's circulating right now. Everybody needs instructions on how to reduce transmission, even if they've heard it before. So how to, how to do the masking, how long they need to stay at home. As we know, the guidelines get updated frequently. So providing them with the most up-to-date and telling them to look on the CDC themselves as well. Um, and how they can isolate in the household or maybe another member in the household. And it is possible not to transmit it to a household member if you follow precautions. We certainly have seen people be able to keep keep it from transmitting in the house. So that's important. And then lastly, really important to give people uh, warning signs about what they need to look for, for you know, worsening symptoms that need to be reevaluated. Um, so these are all important information pieces that everybody should get, whether or not they get COVID-specific therapy. Yes, and that's a good point about the isolation. We certainly know of uh, several examples where people have been able to avoid transmitting it in a household setting. So isolation uh, can be very effective. And what about a pulse oximeter? Should everybody get that or just people at risk? That's a great question. I, I think really that's probably what we've learned during this pandemic, the most helpful tool. So people, so we've learned people don't always have thermometers. So it's good to have a thermometer at home, but a pulse oximeter is really good too, because you can be surprised. There are sometimes people that don't have known risk factors that can have some trouble with COVID. And so I think having a pulse oximeter at home, it should be pretty widely available now. You can find it in lots of different areas. They're not that expensive. Probably a good idea to have one of those at home. Okay. So as, as opposed to last year at this time, we now have several choices that are either FDA authorized or approved for therapy of COVID-19. And those include Paxlovid, the oral therapy, outpatient remdesivir, which is an IV therapy. The monoclonal beptilizumab is the one that we currently use and the oral therapy monopiravir. And so uh, who benefits most from these COVID specific therapies? Do we need to treat everybody? Most of the trials that have looked at these antiviral therapies, these specific COVID therapies, have really looked at patients that are at high risk from progressing from mild to moderate disease to severe disease. And that's really where it's targeted. So when we're talking about outpatients, we're talking about people that don't need to be admitted to the hospital, that aren't requiring oxygen generally. So they're, they're sick with COVID, but you're worried they're going to progress. That's what the trials have looked at. 
We don't have as much data on people that don't have risk factors for, for progressing to severe disease. And there are some side effects with these medicines. So I, I think it really behooves providers for you to know your patient, right? Does this patient have a risk factor for progressing to severe disease? Age is the most important one of those. We know that our patients that are 65 and older really bear the brunt of most hospitalizations, mortality with COVID. Our immunosuppressed patients either are primary immunodeficiency or because of medications they're taking for other medical conditions. Pregnancy, so our pregnant patients are overrepresented in complications from COVID. Obesity, particularly with BMIs over 30. And then smokers. There's less smokers now, which is good, but we still see some people are smoking and vaping. Uh, which has kind of filled the void for our smokers. So those are patients where they may be at higher risk and you should consider a specific therapies for them. Okay, and these therapies, uh, as, as opposed to uh, when they initially came out, they're pretty widely available now, right? I mean, I think that, uh, you know, you can go and look on that website about COVID, therapeutic, um, COVID therapeutics and you can find that they're available in most places. Is that right? I agree, yes, that's, that's very true. And that, that's a really important point that you're raising too. Uh, I think that's one thing you can do proactively is tell your patients about it. Hey, COVID.gov. So they can certainly contact you for information, but everybody has access to COVID.gov um, to, to see about the availability of these the medications. Okay, great. So now um, the NIH guidelines have prioritized uh, these therapies, uh, recommended prioritization of them in, 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 uh, about which to use uh, you know, first. So um, tell us about that and what factors impact their choice. Right, so the nice thing is that we have choices, right? But with choices, then the next step is which, which one should I choose? Uh, the top two that are recommended, number one is Paxlovid. Um, and that's largely because it's oral and you could take it orally and you don't have to worry about IV. And then second is if Paxlovid's not available is IV remdesivir. Now the tricky part with that is that you have to give it IV, right? And that's a little bit harder to do in the outpatient setting, but both Paxlovid and remdesivir have really nice phase three clinical trial data that shows it's effective in preventing progression to severe disease. The alternatives now are the monoclonal antibodies, which we use a lot more of earlier on in the pandemic before we had these choices. But now the monoclonal antibody that has activity that you mentioned earlier, betulovimab, is uh, now an alternative therapy if you can't get those other two. And then molnupiravir is kind of if you can't get those top three. And so there are factors, right? So one of them is availability. You mentioned earlier supply availability. We certainly seen disruptions in supply chains for lots of products, including non-medicine non products, but it's, you know, especially these therapies for COVID. So availability is really key. And then the patient's profile. There are some patients that can't take some of these medicines based on either medications or creatinine clearance. So there may be a reason that your patient can't take one of these medications. So that's important to look at as well. And then feasibility of giving IV medicine. So, you know, you can have a, a great IV medicine, but if you can't get an IV in somebody, that's a real challenge. So those are kind of the major things to think about when you're choosing one for your patient. I know that uh, it's come up several times about transplant patients. And of course, uh, their medications have significant interactions with uh, Paxlovid. And uh, so we've looked at outpatient remdesivir for them, or in some cases, monoclonal antibodies when, when Paxlovid is really not an option. So um, tell us more about Paxlovid. What exactly is it and how does it work? Paxlovid is actually, so Paxlovid is the trade name. The generic name is Nermatrovir, Ritonavir. Uh, it's actually, so it's actually two medicines together. Both of these medicines are protease inhibitors. Ritonavir, you've probably heard of before, that's an old HIV drug. So that the active drug in this that works against SARS-CoV-2 is the Nermatrovir. And that actually has activity against a SARS-CoV-2 virus 
protease. So the virus that causes COVID, it acts against a protease in that virus that's really essential to viral replication. And so by acting against that, it's able to suppress viral replication and suppress those viral loads. The ritonavir is in there not to work as a protease inhibitor, but because it interferes with liver metabolism, hepatic metabolism to boost that, that concentration of the nermatrovir higher so that it has more effective levels against that SARS-CoV-2 virus. So you really have it in there as a booster effect. Because you have both of those in there, the patients actually end up taking a handful of pills. So if they have normal creatinine clearance, they're going to take three pills twice a day for five days. Yeah. And so um, what are the most common side effects? And, and in fact, one of the problems is uh, the ritonavir drug interaction. So can you tell us more about that? Right. So the ritonavir drug interaction. So th those of us that have prescribed ritonavir in the past for HIV patients are familiar with this. Because ritonavir works as a booster, it does that by slowing down liver metabolism. It acts on the cytochrome P450 system. And so it can really inhibit metabolism of a lot of medications. And so medicines basically that are clear through that system, you really have to look at to see if your patient can even take this medicine or if the doses need to be adjusted. So for some medicines, since it's only a five-day course of therapy, you may be able to hold some things like statins, for example, for five days. But for other medicines like antiarrhythmics or anti-epileptic medications, you may not be able to stop those or adjust those. And so that's where you may not be able to use Paxil in your patient. Or an example you mentioned, which is a really good one, transplant recipients. We know they're at really high risk for severe disease, and so we want to treat them, but most of them cannot stop the medicines they're on to prevent organ rejection. And so that's really not a great medicine for them. And that's where we're looking at alternative therapies for our transplant organ recipients. Another yeah, so side effect, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, yes, yeah, so it definitely has some limitations. Definitely. I think the major side effect that patients complain about um, is, is, the, is the taste. So there's actually, I think, Paxlovid mouth may become one of those words that makes it into the Webster Dictionary as people are starting to use more and more Paxlovid, but people really describe this horrible taste. Um, they have lots of very colorful descriptions for that taste in their mouth um, is the major one. And then some diarrhea, which again, related to that ritonavir that we've seen, that we've seen in the past when we used that medicine for our HIV patients. And that bad taste in the mouth is largely from ritonavir, is that correct? Correct, yes. So ritonavir is a bad actor. And so that's a reason why we're not using it in our in our patients that are living with HIV anymore because we have medicines that don't have that. Mm -hmm. um, it's effective, but yeah, it can cause some real problems. Well, how successful is the therapy with Paxlovid? Is it, is it making a difference in outcomes? In, in the right patients, it does. So that Paxlovid, you know, I mentioned the phase three clinical trial. So there was a trial called EPIC-HR, and that was the evaluation of protease inhibitors in treating COVID. And that HR stands for high-risk patients. And when they looked at those patients, when they administered Paxlovid within three or five days of symptom onset, and that's really important, that's somewhat similar to how we use Tamiflu for flu, so you need to give it early on, but when they used it early on, they saw a difference of 88% reduction in the need to be in the hospital or deaths four weeks out, so 28 days later compared to placebo. So a really significant reduction in progressing to more severe disease leading to hospitalization and death. So it does have good data supporting why you would go through the hassle of looking at these drug-drug interactions, this bad taste in the mouth. If your patient's at high risk, there really is significant benefit. So the other thing about Paxlovid is this rebound that happens. You know, initially we heard, oh, it's very rare, but we've seen it a lot. And so um, it's not really rare. So what should we do about that? Should we retreat with Paxlovid? Do people need to go back in isolation when that happens? 
Paxil Vid Rebound has made a lot of news, particularly since some high profile people with both Dr. Fauci and, and President Biden having rebound after they took it. So it doesn't seem like it's that rare. So I think an initial observational study suggested it was less than 1%, but now there's more data as it's being used more, including some data from Pfizer I saw in a, a press report. I haven't seen a trial that suggested maybe it's up to about 10%. So it's still low overall, but that's a fair number of people given the number of people that are taking it. And basically what they're seeing is rebound of both symptoms but also importantly, their viral load, they can have a negative antigen test and suddenly have a positive antigen test again, which means that they can transmit to other people. And so it's important to be aware of that. Now, I'll say one of the, of the silver linings is that with people that have had rebound of their symptoms, none of those patients to date has ended up sick enough that they've been admitted to the hospital later. So the Paxlovid is still holding true to like keeping people from progressing to more severe disease, but you may be at risk for having some symptoms recur um, or having that viral load transmissible to others. So the current recommendation is that if you have rebound of symptoms that you should re-isolate for another five days. So because that viral load's come back up again, the Paxlovid, once you're done with it, is no longer suppressing that viral load, it can rebound and you might be at risk for others. They are not recommending further treatment with Paxlovid. The EUA does not support it at this point. My understanding is that the people are doing clinical trials now to look to see if maybe it's a 10 day course versus a five day course. But right now it's just five days and, and no repeat courses. Although, you know, that being said, I think both Biden and Fauci got a repeat course but <laughs> for the rest of us. No. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what those studies show. So um, let's talk a little bit about monopiravir. You know, it's, it's listed as the last choice, but as we've already said, there's times you can't use Paxlovid. Um, outpatient IV remdesivir is hard uh, to do. Um, the beptilizumab was very scarce for a while and, you know, maybe scarce in the future. So that leaves us with monopiravir. So why is it ranked the last and how, how is it being used? Monopiravir had potential and is promising, but it has some side effects, some issues that, that are important to be aware of. So monopiravir actually has activity against all known coronaviruses that infect people. It basically is a, a, a nucleotide analog. So the virus picks it up, incorporates it, and then because it picks it up, develops mutations and then is no longer able to kind of thrive and reproduce. Unfortunately, there's also the potential that human cells can pick, pick it up as well. And so one of the things that's been seen in, in animal studies is some fetal development due to toxicities. And so that's raised some real concerns for people that are of child, childbearing age or can conceive a child that there might be some risk there. So that's been the real challenge. Um, and so if you're giving it to somebody that's of childbearing age, they're supposed to use contraception. So we always pause a little bit when we hear that because we know that there might not be full compliance with that. It's not really clear how long they need to use contraception after they've taken the, the pill. If they have a different partner, that could be a challenge as well. Um, and so that's, that, there's one concern for people of childbearing age. In people that are less than 18, our patients less than 18 years of age, it can also cause some cartilage and bone toxicity. So we can't use it in children either. So I, I think it's an alternative. It's nice because it's oral, but really I probably would look at patients that were 65 and older, so you don't have to worry about some of those uh, conception issues. The clinical data also is not quite as good. You know, as compared to that 89% that we talked about with Paxlovid, really it only showed a 30% reduction in progressing to severe disease, which is still better than nothing, but certainly not as strong as that data that supports Paxlovid. Okay, so uh, there are some limitations with monopiravir, but uh, there is a role for it in some patients. Uh, so what about steroids? Should we be using dexamethasone or other steroids for outpatients that don't require hospital admission or supplemental oxygen? 
we've seen a lot of steroid use and we know that there's a role for steroid use. Unfortunately, we have a lot of clinical trials that have looked at this as well. You know, so early on in the pandemic, we were seeing a lot more severe illness and we're using a lot of steroids in the inpatient setting. And at that time, we didn't have a lot of data what to do with outpatients. There weren't other, all these choices that we have now that we're talking about. And so people were using a lot of steroids for outpatients. We have data now that shows that dexamethasone in patients that aren't being admitted to the hospital and don't require oxygen does not provide benefit. This was seen in the recovery trial. And actually, there was a large VA study. It was an observational study that looked at patients. If they didn't require oxygen and they received oxygen, dexamethasone, not only did they not have benefit, but it actually they had an increase in their 90-day mortality. So there's some risk with that. And we've actually seen some outpatients that have gotten high dose of, of dexamethasone for longer courses of therapy come in with issues with uncontrolled diabetes, with DKA. There's some concern with fungal infections, which are a potential uh, complication after COVID anyway. So uh, there's concerns, as we know, there's lots of side effects with steroids. So right now, it, NIH actually recommends against dexamethasone or other systemic glucocorticoids in outpatients not requiring oxygen. Right. Okay. And we have seen uh, a lot of those steroid complications. So um, there have been some repurposed medications that have been used. Uh, and so what are some of the other agents that should not be used for COVID-19 now that we have uh, more studies? Right. So more studies has helped us out again here too. So as you mentioned, you know, earliest on, I think the earliest one that we all heard about that was promoted through, I think the internet was hydroxychloroquine was going to save us from uh, COVID-19. Um, unfortunately, it did not live up to the initial promise uh, or the thought that it might be able to hold up, hold up for COVID and read, more robust studies have not shown benefit for hydroxychloroquine. Antibacterials were being used, uh, most predominantly azithromycin and doxycycline. Um, neither of those actually has any benefit against COVID-19 and there's always risk for antibiotics. As we know, people can get side effects, they can get C. diff colitis, they can get resistant organisms. Um, so those are ones not to be used. Lopinavir ritonavir is a different HIV medicine that was used often in conjunction with these others. That has not shown benefit, that's been studied. And then ivermectin also had a lot of press. Um, and initially there was not a lot of good robust studies. Subsequently, we do now have very robust clinical studies that have looked at ivermectin and it has not shown clinical benefit. And there have been some, some people that have taken ivermectin at high doses and have suffered some side effects from that. So ivermectin is also not recommended. Right. And so, and about the antibacterial therapy, uh, besides the things that you mentioned, there's also antibiotic resistance uh, that can occur. And then azithromycin can prolong the QT interval and uh, interact with a lot of other medications that people are on. And that's something that's not widely recognized. So, so that can be a problem with that too. So given that this disease will continue to be with us, it appears, what do you see as future advances in treatment or prevention? And are there other agents or strategies on the horizon? Interestingly, there was a study that was just published last week in, in Nature Communications. It was from uh, some researchers on the University of British Columbia. They actually identified a target on the spike protein that was actually conserved against and throughout all of the major variants that we've seen so far, from the original strain through alpha, delta, gamma, the whole list, up to the Omicron subvariants. They used a cryogenic electron microscopy to recreate the virus and look at different target sites. They were actually also able to show an antibody fragment was able to use a unique mode of binding to this target. And by doing so, it neutralized all of the variants. So really it had activity against all the variants, despite the different mutations that we know that they're widely different from one another. 
So really impressive. So that's not a therapeutic that's available now, but I, I think it's promising because it highlights a couple of things. One, it highlights that people are still looking closely at better therapeutics. And it shows us that there are vulnerabilities to SARS-CoV-2, as we've learned, so we can get past this virus. And then it provides a target for, for developers to start working on therapeutics that really aim at this binding site. So either a monoclonal antibody or even better, a vaccine that could create antibodies to this region would be really helpful. Um, there's ongoing work to look at universal vaccines. This would be a way of kind of looking at something like that. That would be great if we had one vaccine that was active against all the variants. Um, let me circle back to this. There's also a preventive medicine, Evishield, um, and it seems to be underutilized. When should we be using Evishield? Right, Evishield is an important tool, right? It's a monoclonal antibody, but as opposed to the monoclonal antibodies that you hear about a lot in the news, this one's actually pre-exposure prophylaxis. And so really it's reserved for our patients that are not expected to respond to the vaccine. So they either have an immunodeficiency or they're taking immunosuppressing medicines that are gonna prevent them from having the antibody response that we expect in a normal healthy patient. And so you can administer this Evyshell medicine to them to give them basically a proxy vaccine response, to give them some circulating antibody that lasts for a few months to keep them protected, especially during high periods of COVID activity. And so we, we definitely, I agree, should be using it because you can really impact your patients that are gonna be at higher risk for complications. Great. So um, uh, a year out from, uh, almost a year out from the, the release of the first uh, medicine, we have a lot of choices. And so we're in a much better position this year than last year. Dr. Bowling, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thanks Dr. Patterson.